I'm with Francis Sommer Anderson, a psychoanalyst and psychologist who has been specializing in helping people with pain. Uh, hi, Fran. Hello, Serge. Um, so one of the things I get uh, from uh, your work is that uh, pain is not a simple concept. It's something pretty complicated. Yes, it is. And I think that's so important for anyone trying to help someone in pain. Uh, pain, from what we have learned from the pain researchers in the past 50 years or so, is, and this is something that Freud understood um, more than 100 years ago, and contemporary pain researchers have borne it out, that pain is a complex subjective experience. It's a perceptual process that requires us to be conscious or aware. It involves sensations, usually sensations that come from the surface of the body and the internal organs, and it involves emotions because sensations that come from the external surface of the body as well as the viscera uh, pass through the limbic system which is associated with an emotional reaction and emotional memories of sensations from the past and it also involves the higher brain centers, the cortex which is associated with thinking and evaluating and complicated belief systems about sensations. So we have then pain is a complex subjective experience that involves sensations, emotions, and thoughts. Hmm. So as you, um, you talk about the subjective part, so conceivably people could experience pain without an external input. Definitely. And in fact, very fascinating research I think that uh, underscores this is a lot of the research done by an outstanding psychologist, pain researcher Ronald Melzack and his colleagues who have studied people born without limbs and those people can actually experience sensations in the absent limb. So this kind of research, including research on people who have severed spinal cords who can still feel their sensations in their limbs, um, led Melzack and his colleagues to produce more research that shows that there's no one center in the brain that perceives pain, that actually pain is the result of a pattern of responses in different areas of the brain in response to sensations that are that come from the outside, from the viscera, or even from our thoughts. An example of that is session with a patient who came to me because of uh, pain in his neck, mm-hmm. and that pain was relieved through our talking work, examining the emotional circumstances that surrounded the beginning of the pain, which is not due to a trauma. It just he woke up one morning with pain in his neck. Mm-hmm. And the pain continued for several months, and 
he had it evaluated very carefully medically and they, there was no medical or structural basis for the pain and as a result of our work in understanding his emotions at the time that the sensations of pain developed, we were able to relieve his pain. And as we began to work on helping him deal with the emotional stressors in his life, there was a session in which we were talking about a complicated family relationship that he had had since he was a child. And as he was going into the details about a recent interaction with that person, his neck started to hurt. So that's a very dramatic example about how thinking and talking about a situation can evoke emotions that are associated with sensations in the past, and those sensations can come up in the form of pain. And that's a perfect uh, example of the uh, popular expression, the pain in the neck. Absolutely. So, Anna, this is uh, something that maybe uh, uh, therapists can be can relate to in the sense of an example of a psychosomatic pain. Um, but it's you know for for many of us the idea of pain uh, not being really directly related to some kind of an input, some kind of a stimulus, is difficult to to follow. It is because. As sophisticated as we have become medically uh, in, in the area of psychosomatics and psychogenic uh, mechanisms and body work, um, our Western medical system is still being plagued in a way by the mind-body dualism and Descartes model uh, that led to the model of pain being one in which pain was associated with some physical injury or structural problem or disease. Mm-hmm. And it was assumed that there was a one-to-one correspondence between uh, disease or structural problem and the experience of pain. And we've come to learn that that is um, not at all the case. It's far more complicated. So, you know, what are the things that uh, that create, that contribute to uh, to the experience of pain as it is constructed? Well, the in the beginning of life, if if we think about how we learn to call sensations pain, how do we learn to call sensations pain? We learn that through our interactions with the primary caregiving others around us when we're infants and as we continue to grow physically and develop cognitively, uh, the caregiving others and the culture in which they live and we live give labels to sensations. Now, caregiving others can't see the the sensation of pain. They can only see an infant or child's behavioral expressions in reaction to something. Mm -hmm. For uh, 
facial expressions, the sound of an infant's cry, the way the infant is moving around. So the mother or father, for example, they interpret behaviors of the infants to indicate that he or she is in pain and they respond however they respond to that so uh, you can begin to see how complicated this gets yeah. because since we can't measure pain objectively in any way the way we can measure blood pressure or temperature um, we have to infer that someone is in pain and for children, infants and children before there's language, we get those labels through interactions with the people who are taking care of us. And then the culture shapes how much uh, pain is uh, acceptable to experience. Mm -hmm. Their gender influences, and I think we're still uh, certainly being affected by uh, the notion that uh, one should be tough, and particularly if you're a guy, you shouldn't show pain. And maybe maybe women can tolerate pain more easily than men. There are a lot of stereotypes if we think about begin to think about it. So. There's a developmental process that underlies what we come to describe as pain for ourselves, for each of us. And um, that developmental process kind of lays down a template for how we uh, begin to interpret sensations from our body and uh, sensations that are caused, for example, when we have thoughts that evoke uh, painful or unpleasant emotions and reactions to those thoughts. So we have the developmental process, which is very important. And in treating someone who's in pain, it's, if at all possible, it's good to uh, learn as much as we can within the framework of how, how we're offering care to that person. If we can learn about their early experiences of being soothed, of being cared for, did they have early experiences of being in acute pain or chronic pain? Because that can make a very big difference we're coming to learn in terms of um, how pathways in the brain are actually affected. So if a child has been through um, very difficult uh, medical illness that requires lots of uh, injections and uh, medical treatments, that's going to affect how they experience later circumstances in which they might have to undergo similar uh, procedures. Yeah, so you're, you're talking about uh, pathways in the brain, and so this is in contrast to the uh, model in which there would be one pain center and the direct uh, connection between the stimulus of uh, physical pain and the sensation of pain. And because of these pathways, this where all of these different influences are manifested. Yes, there is no there is no one pain center. There are multiple pathways uh, in the central nervous system um, that uh, become sensitized to certain kinds of uh, stimuli coming in that are noxious, 
and then they tend to react more quickly in terms of labeling and experience as painful. Right, and the key word there is what you say, labeling. Mm-hmm, labeling. Yeah. And then, so we have those early experiences, developmental experiences of um, having experienced pain. Um, also, uh, in that developmental process, if a young person has been in the presence of someone in acute pain or chronic pain or some kind of medical illness or disability, that can also... Um, it in fact lays down certain memories of how easily another person's pain can be relieved or not. And that comes also to affect what their set of expectations are. This is where the thoughts and beliefs and cognitions become important. And past experience uh, leads one to expect that they will be, be relieved or not. Um, so the uh, on the topic of the, de- the component of developmental processes, we've identified those influences. And then other factors uh, that uh, affect our um, experience of pain in the present are and certainly the, the nature of our current um, living situation, how much stress we're under, um, that can uh, affect how much pain or how much unpleasant sensation we can tolerate. And then the another area that uh, has become um, of great interest recently and particularly uh, in treating uh, soldiers who are involved in the war in Iraq there's been an increase of funding uh, for the study of uh, acute traumatic pain, mm-hmm. which is um, a, a very positive uh, direction for uh, research, research funding these days. And what they've come to understand is that if, if one uh, is acutely injured, the sooner treatment can be given in terms of um, a massive shutdown of signals from the um, injured side, a massive shutdown of those signals, interfering with those signals going into the brain, can actually prevent uh, a chronic pain problem from developing. So as soon as a a soldier or anyone is, um, you know, subjected to a, a serious physical injury, the sooner anesthesia can be given um, to block those signals to the um, central nervous system, the brain, the better because um, very massive um, stimulation, not just stimulation to the brain, destabilizes the entire brain's operating system, so to speak, and it can 
and um, if the pain goes on, the acute pain goes on for a long period of time, it can be very difficult to recover. And one way that this uh, research is being used um, in planned surgical interventions, when someone is going to have a surgery, um, really of any kind, but there are certain surgeries like lung surgery and certain orthopedic procedures that are bound to produce lots of pain, um, they will, the pain control uh, anesthesiologists will give often give an, um, an epidural before the surgery in several hours before the surgery to shut down pain signals to the brain so that while the person is under general anesthesia, um, the actual pain that could be going to the brain, even though one is under anesthesia, um, those pain signals will be prevented from going to the brain and that produces a better post-operative recovery and reduces the chances that a chronic pain situation will develop. Hmm. So there's a lot in what you were saying and I want to just try and uh, ask a couple of questions about that. Um, uh, one is that um, if you have an extreme experience of pain that's lasting, that creates an imbalance in the uh, nervous system and a stronger chance of experiencing chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And two, that there is a difference between general anesthesia and the epidural because the epidural blocks the uh, sensation of pain from coming to the brain, mm -hmm. and whereas general anesthesia doesn't. It doesn't. Yes. And so that would explain that people uh, under anesthesia may not have the experience of pain because they were asleep, but that they would experience later traumatic effects. Yes, and this is where um, the phrase we're now using, the body remembers. Mm -hmm. the, the body, the, the brain central nervous system, remembers even though the person has been under general anesthesia unless they've had an epidural. And the epidural goes into um, you know, the spinal cord and actually blocks signals above the epidural, uh, the level of the epidural, and blocks those signals to the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that certainly changes a lot of um, just the regular uh, conception of pain as something that's had that simple mm -hmm. mechanism. Would and you that's, can I just say one yeah. thing about that? Um, that's a very useful thing to remember in case uh, anyone you know is going to have a surgical procedure to ask about the pain control uh, that's going to be used. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, up until recently, um, with because of all of this new research, people didn't think about it very much. And so, I in um, in treating anyone I see, people who come to me not because of pain or whatever, if if they're going to have a surgical procedure or someone they know is going to have a surgical procedure, I believe very much in a kind of a psychoeducational piece about pain mm -hmm. um, so that they can be proactive in their um, medical care. Yeah. And then if we have uh, a patient or client um, who has had a surgery in the past or a recent surgery and uh, they're coming to us because of some pain concern, 
um, it may in fact have something to do with those procedures. So this is another um, reason to try to find a way to, to ask about people's past experience with pain, including uh, surgical procedures, uh, so that we begin to have a sense of some of the forces that might be at work, at work and uh, affecting how they're experiencing their body now, particularly when it comes to pain. Mm-hmm. So um, that uh, you know your statement last sentence was how they're experiencing their body in reference to pain. So what happens uh, during sessions when you deal with patients who uh, bring up pain, uh, either uh, strong acute pain or chronic pain? Um, you know, what's uh, could you give us some some examples? Um. If a patient is coming to me because of chronic pain, it would be because they've been referred to me by a physician. Mm-hmm. And that physician will have some point of view about the source, the etiology of the person's pain. I do a lot of work. I have done a lot of work since 1979 with Dr. John Sarno, and I know you know about Dr. Sarno's yeah. work, um, and many of you listening may have heard about it. Dr. Sarno is a physiatrist at Rusk Institute NYU Medical Center, and he very much believes in the powerful effects of emotional stress in actually generating a pain experience and certainly maintaining it um, even after some initial injury is long is long past. So um, many of the patients come to me having seen Dr. Sarno and been educated by him, first examined, but then educated by him about the anatomy and physiology of pain and the role that emotions play. So we're working with a, uh, a theory um, i.e. a diagnosis about the source of their pain. So we, the patient and I, in, a, in the talking frame, start to examine, identify what emotional factors are at work in their psychological slash pain situation. So Someone comes in for an initial consultation, and I ask for a brief history of their physical pain and what interventions they've had. And then we begin together to I, uh, ask uh, what was happening in your emotional life in the year or so before your pain developed. And then I ask very particular questions about the exact circumstances in which the pain started. Sometimes it's a gradual onset and then reaches a level that's um, pretty intolerable. Sometimes it's a sudden onset. Someone will wake up one morning with a pain in their back or their shoulder or their neck, uh, as in the example of the person I mentioned earlier, the pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we have been conditioned to check to see what we've done. Did we sleep in a funny position? Uh, Did we overexert ourselves physically? Did we bend the wrong way? Did we work out too hard at the gym? Those kinds of things naturally come to mind because that's what we've learned in our culture. Mm -hmm. So 
if this patient is coming from Dr. Sarnum, he's already um, talked with him about that. And we start to instead ask, well, what was happening the day before, uh, the night before you woke up the next morning and your neck was hurting? And so once the person is able to start to tune into what was going on in their emotional life, how they were feeling, um, that can open up uh, a very different way of working with their pain so that we're not, um, I'm not, for example, doing pain management with that person. Um, I'm not doing relaxation exercises or hypnosis. Um, we're trying to help them begin to experience their emotions that most likely they were dissociated from. Um, and so that's how I begin to work with someone who comes with a diagnosis from Dr. Sarno. Yeah. I do see other people who have uh, pain conditions. Um, I always talk with their physician first to see what the understanding is. Sometimes I do pain management because there are certain conditions um, that uh, are associated like peripheral neuro neuropathy, either congenital or secondary to a condition like diabetes, um, can produce severe almost intolerable pain in the uh, feet and legs and hands. And in those situations, uh, I would do uh, use some kind of imagery, um, educate the person about um, certain breathing techniques to you know, help them slow down their reaction to the sensations they're having. And that's where um, the, uh, referring back to the beginning of our discussion today, when I said pain is a complex subjective experience mm -hmm. that involves sensations, emotions, and thoughts and beliefs, um, for someone with, for example, peripheral neuropathy, um, we would be acknowledging their sensations that are painful, and we would be trying to help them with their reactions to the sensations, their emotional reactions, devastated, overwhelmed, mm. for example, and their thoughts and beliefs. Their thoughts and beliefs may be, I can't get any better. I've heard horror stories about people with peripheral neuropathy, so I'll never get any better. So that, that's a blend of a belief, I can't get better from pain, from this pain, because of things that I've been told, and that those things that I've been told make me feel overwhelmed, and so what's the use? Yeah. Which will then only reinforce um, more pain, because the more we react negatively mm -hmm. to pain, or the more reactive we are to it in a panicky, anxious way, actually the more intense it can be become. So. That's the situation in which I would use um, pain management. Yeah. And so, in a way, when you were saying that um, uh, pain is, is uh, complicated, uh, there's a bad news and good news. The bad news is it's complicated, but the good news is because it's complicated, you actually have more of a way to find places where there's a grip uh, to act on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And certainly um, body work 
can be one of those interventions. Um, because I was uh, trained at Rusk and was on the staff at Rusk Institute for 13 years, um, I was so fortunate to learn about an interdisciplinary approach to any kind of physical disability. And so I really value what people from different disciplines can offer a person who's in a complicated situation uh, when it comes to pain. Mm -hmm. And um, and the other part, what you were saying earlier about uh, people who came from, uh, say, uh, Dr. Sarno, is that, um, uh, you know, by having seen Dr. Sarno, they already were... Uh, buying into the idea of uh, uh, the pain coming from an emotional cause so that, you know, they were willing and ready to have that shift of um, what to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I've told Dr. Sarno that who believes in psychoanalysis and a psychodynamic approach. Um, I've said, Dr. Sarno, when you make your diagnosis, of tension myoneural syndrome or tension myositis syndrome is what it used to be called. That's the medical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I said, what you're doing is giving a psychoanalytic interpretation. You're linking mm -hmm. the mind and the body. Mm -hmm. And so then once that link is offered to the patient, uh, you know, sometimes they're relieved. Sometimes, you know, they're resistant but willing to explore. Mm -hmm. uh, once that link is made, then uh, it, it's easier to begin to explore um, the the emotions uh, that are that are um, have contributed to the pain. And by the way, this is not to say that the the sensations that they are experiencing are not real. Mm -hmm. um, psychosomatic, psychogenic, what, to use those terms, um, uh, they are often to the patient's ears, uh, meaning that my pain isn't real, it's all in my head. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what it means at all. The pain is very real. But the, what is causing the pain is not necessarily a structural problem in the knee or the foot or the back. It's this complicated perceptual process that we've been talking about today mm -hmm. um, that involves sensations plus emotions plus cognitions, the way we evaluate and what we've come to believe about uh, what causes pain. Well, that that feels uh, that 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 feels um, very uh, powerful. That sense of uh, a different understanding of uh, where the pain comes from, giving a possibility of action instead of that uh, feeling of powerlessness in front of the expression of pain. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to check with you uh, if uh, this would be a good place to uh, stop our interview. There's something you m might want to add, or should we leave it here? Well, I would like to add that um, I developed my own pain symptoms um, in, during the time that I've gone, about five years after I began working with Dr. Sarno's patients. Mm -hmm. And so I, 
I, I find that that has really helped me be a more effective um, clinician in working with people in pain. And the, my experience of trying to understand and re, you know, recover from my own pain uh, syndrome, we could call it, mm-hmm. um, has been so powerful. It's, it's influenced um, my professional life and um, where where it's led me to look in the professional literature and body workers I've gone to. Um, and I actually was moved so much by it that I wrote a chapter for the book that I edited that was published last year, mm-hmm. Bodies in Treatment, The Unspoken Dimension. Um, I write about my own discoveries and my own long journey uh, in understanding the origins of my own pain symptom, and that might be helpful uh, to people. I'm certainly hoping it's helpful to professionals and to um, people in pain who might read it. That book is written for a professional audience, and it is an uh, effort on my part to... um, bring an interdisciplinary focus to uh, psychoanalytic treatment in terms of bringing in, in practitioners who do body work and um, how uh, body work approaches can be useful uh, in the talking frame mm-hmm. adjunctively um, very often because, at least in New York State, People who do the talking, work in the talking frame are not licensed to touch patients. So we have to find some way and ways to, you know, kind of integrate body work and the talking frame. So I think that might be um, of interest to those yeah. listening. Yeah, the very much. I think you're talking about uh, that sense of integration and the... Uh, very important. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we uh, have so much to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you, friend. Thank you, Serge. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. And practitioners who do body work and um, how uh, body work approaches can be useful uh, in the talking frame mm-hmm. adjunctively um, very often because, at least in New York State, people who do the talking, work in the talking frame are not licensed to touch patients. So we have to find some way and ways to, you know, kind of integrate body work and the talking frame. So I think that might be um of interest to those yeah. listening. Yeah, the very much. I think you're talking about uh, that sense of integration and the... Uh, very uh, important. Yeah, yeah. And, we have uh, so much to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you, friend. Thank you, Serge. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com